Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology, with me, Tiasha Zaitz. This is the fifth episode of the Cancer series on Faces of Digital Health. We dug into various topics, from progress in genomics to precision therapies, AI for drug discovery in oncology, access to drugs in the US and Canada, and cancer survivorship, which refers to the financial toxicity patients might face after they survive cancer and are told that they are cured. For a quick recap, here are some thoughts from José M. Fernández, genomicist and up until recently the chief data officer at Institut Curie in France, and Tuvik Baker, CEO of Pangea Biomed from Israel, who talked about the progress in genomics and precision oncology. Today, thanks to this genomic sequencing, these molecular panels, we can better identify at molecular level the changes in a particular tumor, and then we can use part of the arsenal that we have. Some of the drugs will be targeting some of those mutations. So that's why genomics today are very important in the precision oncology uh, landscape where we can use uh, that kind of analysis to diagnose cancer on early stages because the earlier we can identify the disease, more options are available in terms of treatment. In oncology, we've got very precise, specific, targeted medications. They started appearing around 20 years ago Uh, with the better understanding of the genomic mechanisms underlying cancer cell biology. And uh, they sometimes do miracles. But the problem is really the vast gap that occurs where most of the patients, around 95% of the patient population, do not benefit from these wonderful drugs. And this is so because the current paradigm of precision oncology relies very heavily on actionable mutations and other rare genomic events. If you're lucky enough and you have one of those few actionable mutations, then yes, we may match you with a particular drug that would target that very specific mutations. But there are two problems here. First, these mutations are by definition rare, they occur in a small minority of the patients, and even if one is lucky enough to have one of these, they are very far from being perfect biomarkers. So if you have such a mutation and you get a matched drug, it doesn't mean that you're very highly likely to respond. In fact, the response rates are still around 30-40% overall for patients who get a matched targeted or precision drug. It is clear that better understanding at molecular level of the different cancers enable us to better stratify patients. And therefore, if you have better stratified patients, you might have better therapies available for them. But I think that liquid biopsy, we have to be cautious. We have to see the data and not listen to the marketing of the different teams or different companies. It's going to be a big change, but there's going to be a transition. And that transition has to be done in the right way without patients which receive a test saying it seems that you have a cancer, panic, will be very worried, and maybe three months out the line, after several tests, say, oh, sorry, it was a glitch on our algorithm. 
we have to avoid that. I believe that could be the future, but the future is not tomorrow. While progress is happening quite rapidly in oncology, patients still face challenges when accessing clinical trials and medications. David J. Stewart, professor of medicine in the Division of Medical Oncology at the University of Ottawa and the Ottawa Hospital in Canada, talked a lot about access to cancer treatments in Canada and the U.S. in the first episode. On average, after Health Canada approves a drug, companies do not apply to Canada until an average of eight to ten months after applying to the United States or Europe, simply because Canada is a much smaller market. The United States has 330 million people. The EMA in Europe negotiates on behalf of about 500 million people. Canada has a population of about 10 to 35 million people, and and so a relatively small population. And so it makes sense for companies to apply to bigger areas first. Large numbers of, of people can die while we for access to these effective neutrons. Survival rates of cancer are improving, which is good news. But as warned by Dr. François Mounier, member of the Belgian Royal Academy of Medicine, former Director General of European Organization for Research and Treatment of Cancer, and the scientific member of the European Cancer Patient Coalition, patients that survive cancer face a lot of problems after they're told that their disease is gone. I observe tremendous progress in the field of medical care for patients with cancer. As when I was graduated as a medical doctor in 1974, announcing the diagnosis of cancer to a patient was a death sentence. For many cancers, we had no real effective treatment and the survival rate were uh, dismissal. While throughout the time of my medical career, over 45 years, I observed tremendous progress and major improvement in the survivorship of patients with cancer. But the society did not realize, did not cope with the success of the medical field. And the society, meaning the employer, the banker, the insurer, did not realize that cancer was no longer a death sentence. And that's how I initiated the concept of cancer survivorship, particularly for financial toxicity. There are plenty of examples of patients who, to whom we, medical doctors, medical oncologists, we tell you are cured, live your life. We no longer need to do all those tests and to do a follow-up every six months, perhaps once a year or even not at all. And facing that, the patient came back to us saying, yes, live your life, but we cannot buy an apartment or a home. Medical progress is driven by research, and good research requires good data. So in this final episode of the Cancer Series, you will get an insight into data management and data strategy from the largest single-site cancer center in Europe and the biggest chemotherapy center in the UK, the Christie NHS Foundation Trust. I spoke with Phil Bottomley, EHR strategic lead at the Christie NHS Foundation Trust, who explained the digital strategy of the Oncology Center, how the hospital digitizes clinical forms, how patients report their treatment outcomes from their homes, and how any clinical institution should first think about the organizational goals, 
then technology when deciding about how to go about their digital transformation. The Christie runs over 650 clinical trials at any given time and treats 60,000 patients annually. Before we begin, have you checked out our newsletter yet? The latest edition captures a recap of the cancer series, so do check it out and decide which one of the topics you might dive into further. Now to Phil Bottomley. Phil, hi, and thank you for joining this discussion. This is actually going to be the last discussion in the cancer series that's currently running on Faces of Digital Health. We focused on various aspects of oncology and cancer care, and the former chief data officer at the Institut Curie from France, uh, José Fernandez, mentioned that cancer is a very data-rich disease for several reasons. There's an increasing amount of genomic testing that's used to understand the different times of tumors and cancers. And also cancer as a disease is not static. So every time a patient visits the hospital, the results might be different. The tumor might progress. So that makes it very potentially challenging or just demanding to really understand the data and know how to inter- interpret it. And I just wanted to start with a very general warm-up question. The Christie is the largest single-site cancer center in Europe. You've got 60,000 patients that you treat each year. And from that perspective, how would you say that this oncology center is different from, let's say, acute hospitals in terms of the digital strategy and the data IT infrastructure that's needed? Oh, yeah, good and really good to be here. I think to start with, I've been on a bit of a learning exercise about the Christie because my background is, is, was acute hospitals before. So I'm quite well placed to, to talk about the differences. I think the first part about the Christie is it's predominantly outpatient based. So inpatients make up a very small amount of the hospital as, as the overall capacity. So that means that in a, in a normal acute hospital, you're more focused on things like A&E critical care, these other parts that are very high profile. The Christie doesn't have any of those functions or those functions are a lot smaller because most of our patients that are inpatients tend to have had some outpatient treatment and then have become inpatients because of the nature of the symptoms after their treatment. And the second part is it's, it's quite small. It, it's quite actually a small organization, although it reaches very far. It's a very virtual organization, but the core center it's quite easy to manage and it is it, in terms of managing changes can be difficult because we're different, but can be easier because we're smaller. It's interesting that you said that a lot of the things are done virtually. So maybe we can dive into that a little bit more. What do you mean by that? Does that also come from the fact that because of the pandemic and because of the decreased amount of inpatient or outpatient visits in the hospital, we went into the whole virtual care and telemedicine? Uh, Absolutely. I think during COVID, like many of the hospitals, we deployed a lot more technology to support some of that virtual appointments. So we, we now do more virtual appointments than we did before. We hardly did any before. Now we do a lot more. I think secondly, care at home and care in other areas. Christy already did a lot of home remote care already. So that was relatively 
established, just needed to just change slightly in the pandemic of how perhaps those communications were managed, where they might have been managed differently. And secondly, the Christie in terms of its footprint, ignoring COVID for a second, the Christie has its main site in Manchester and they're in a certain part of Manchester, but actually where we have many satellite sites that are all around Greater Manchester and Cheshire and Merseyside. So when I say the Christie is a virtual organisation, there's so many different buildings other than the main building. A lot of people just focus on the main building and where that's located. But we have sites in Cheshire, Oldham, Salford, everywhere. We actually run services on behalf of other hospitals as well outside of Greater Manchester and nationally as well. So nationally, we also have proton beam therapy center at the Christie, and we were the first we were the first host in the uk to have that there's now only still two one in london and one in the Christie in manchester so also when we say virtual is a lot of our referrals and a lot of our treatments almost a quarter of our treatments come from outside of manchester or cheshire because if you have if you need proton beam therapy from anywhere in the country there's only two places in the country to go so the whole north of the country and scotland and wales potentially further would come to the Christie. And what does that mean in terms of the whole data management? So how is data gathered so far? Specifically, it's recently been reported that you started digitizing the clinical forms and use over 600 of clinical forms. So I just was wondering if you could explain how did the data gathering look like before the digitalization? Where are you now with that process? And we can just try to understand when you gather data manually, how is that data then managed? Is it somehow transcribed into Excel spreadsheets for research, like just everything? Can you take us through the journey? So I think of all, of all, when I first came to Chris Day, I was really impressed by what I saw at the Christie and what had been built at the Christie. And it was really quite impressive. And I think I described it as we're very good at capturing data for all those different reasons from those different areas, very good at capturing data, but we're perhaps struggle or struggled to use that data for anything else other than the capture to use it for secondary purposes like research, clinical trials, those type activities so that so there is still a lot of transcribing and to really unlock that data is actually quite difficult. And that's why we've embarked on more of a open data approach and thinking about data first. What's our data need to look like before we start thinking about how that's captured and, and OpenEHR is a really good standard to work off because OpenEHR is a storage standard and it's all about storing that data in a good format for them to be used and secondarily for uh, research. An interesting thing that you said is that you're now thinking first about what kind of data you need rather than just thinking about the form. So maybe we can continue from there a little bit. How does the whole digital transformation look like in this sense? Because it seems that everybody needs to start thinking differently. And also when we're talking about digitizing the clinical forms, can you maybe explain who does this? Is, does, is this done by the IT team? Is this done by the doctors? How big is the team, given the size of the institution? Yeah, again, the Christie has been really good at capturing data for a very long time. It's had really established good processes for clinical data capture. So there is a dedicated team that works in digital department whose job it is to build data capture forms and that really established, really skilled team and they works really closely with clinicians as well which is really beneficial that was really good that whole process was 
really established and really quite impressive. I think the harder bits were we didn't quite have the platform or the data focused approach to realize that that great stuff, that great capability could then be channeled into capturing really good data for cancer research and cancer outcomes in the hospital as well. So we had that established team. That team was a was a, like a squad of low code developers who who were really skilled in doing that. Just we just had the wrong tools and the wrong platform to realize the second part, which was the data. So that was really established, made my job a lot easier when we came in and had to understand how we were going to modernize. We didn't have to really think too much about the process and the people, the process and the people that call to everything. But actually, those were already, when we did do a big piece on process and people, those were already in place. So how far are you now with the whole digitization process? As we mentioned, over 600 clinical forms there's a lot of, I'm sure, layers to, to unpack there. Yeah, absolutely. Part of the work we've done to, at the beginning is try and break off a really easy part that perhaps isn't as difficult, prove the theory and make sure that we can deliver for the organization. So we concentrate on very much patient-facing forms, so EPROMs, and that's EPROMs is where the patient fills in clinical information at home and it submits it to their care team so that to reduce the need for them to come in to hospital so the clinicians have even more up-to-date data and accurate data before when the patient's in front of them in hospital, when they're coming for their outpatient appointment. That was the first part, and that was about 25 forms that involved their modernizing. That was relatively simple, not simple, but less hard. We picked that deliberately. But the the bigger challenge that we're embarking on now is those remaining uh, clinical-facing forms, which are filled in by care teams in our various satellite locations. And there's about 600 of those. And again, we want to repeat the pattern of collaborating with clinicians, medical nursing, research specialists, the people who need to model that data. And we're going to be working over that uh, over about two year period to modernize all those 600. And we think that by the end, we won't have 600. We think we'll have probably 200. But by that point, they'll all be pre-data modeled from the beginning using OpenEHR. And therefore, that data set will be created as well. And actually the data set is probably the most valuable part rather than the, whether it's a radio button, whether it's a drop down, whether it's uh, what the form looks like. It, we're really, again, back to the data first. So what are the expectations that you have regarding the data after this process is going to end? Because as you mentioned, you capture a lot of data, but not a lot of it is is then reused for any additional secondary purposes. Is that kind of also the plan? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So it's a two-pronged approach. We, did, we set up initially on making sure we could capture the data in a really good way, but in parallel, we're now starting to think about how do we build that pipeline that sits under perhaps the application where that data can be piped to work on more research collaboratives or in a safe, trusted environment can be accessed by the right people with the right controls. So we're working on then now, if you imagine the, the data capture is more above the iceberg, we're now looking under the iceberg as to there's some real architecture work here we need to do and there's some real data engineering work we need to do to put to to then use that data for secondary purposes. So yeah, we're doing those two things in parallel, but both we deliberately needed to make sure we're capturing the data correctly first. Otherwise, there won't be much use on focusing on where the data goes. 
Can you maybe explain a bit how is the whole experience with these digital forms changing for doctors and for the patients? We mentioned earlier that most patients come to the hospital just for for checkups and then to report about their patient-reported outcomes. Um, sometimes there's this, I guess, a sense that maybe that data is relatively accurate because when patients come in the hospital, they basically report on how they feel in retrospect. So is that also changing, which would also mean that the quality or just the content of the data would change? So in in the hospital itself, again, we're very good at capturing data, perhaps the usability of of that capture is not that useful, or you have to enter things in multiple places, or you have to enter things twice along the pathway. A lot of the work we're doing with the 600 remaining capture points is to actually redesign our clinical pathways at the same time. So rather than just replacing what's there with a modern technology, actually look, is this the right flow? Does this data need to be captured here at point A or point B or point C? Or do I need to capture this data at point C if I've already captured it at point A? So the good advantage of using a modern platform is that it, and, and the data approach is it doesn't really matter which part of the pathway the data is captured. If it has been captured, we can pre-populate that or we can give decision support to show that later down the pathway so we don't have to enter things twice. And that, the aim of that is to make the whole clinical process a lot more streamlined, but at the same time, not just focus on, it's, it's not just a technology part that like we're going to work with the, our divisions and with our care teams. And how do you see that digitalization as such is changing your work in practice? And what I mean with that question is that generally speaking, in the pharma industry, in the digital health industry, we often hear about decentralized clinical trials, the fact that the whole care is moving into the home setting, which means that also the reporting, the monitoring needs to move there. And the next question is then how do you ensure that the data that you capture is secure and how do you even go about capturing the data from home and then transmit it to the doctor what's that like in your case in the uk specifically there's a lot of discussion about the uptake of virtual clinical wards which has just expanded over the pandemic and we talked about proms i don't know to which extent do patients fill them out already at home does that impact how often do they need to go to the hospital because there's more care that's done virtually. I'll probably break that down into three parts. First part is on security, absolutely the top mission. So we've done a lot of under, underpinning technical work to really shore up our foundations on infrastructure and cyber. And that's running a, a separate department in from the work that we do. But that's been really important as well to make sure that everyone we capture is secure, resilient, and we're up to all the compliance standards required. So that's the first part. The, the second part is really working on what's the governance process as well. So making sure the governance process is robust and really we should focus on the governance process just before we start having ideas about where that should be shared, having that, making sure that ethics and, the, and that governance process is in place really important. And then thirdly, on more, di- on more where it's captured from in the sort of decentralized nature of it, a good part about the OpenHR strategy that we're on is we're, we're, we we are focusing on the data model first. And then secondly, we're focusing on where that data comes from. So that data could come from a device at home. That data could be filled in by the patient. That data could be filled in by a clinician. That data could be filled in by a hospital at another trust, but is sent to us. But in all those examples, it's all still going to be stored in a single longitudinal record, ideally with the same 
data models. So that's really core to their decentralized nature is really if you, as long as you've got standard data sets, the decentralized systems are too problematic. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I guess that's important to think about when we look at the fact that the Christie does 650 clinical trials at any given time. That's a huge number. From that perspective, I imagine that uh, having a robust data strategy might be a, quite a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And we're really, I'm really conscious of that. Clinical trials at the Christie, the majority of our clinic, of our outpatient activity, a huge amount of those outpatients opt for clinical trials just because the nature of the Christie takes on the very, very specialist cancer patients. So a lot of patients do opt for clinical trials. I think the numbers are very high. So yeah, that's definitely something we're aware of. But again, that's why, again, data is the key because we focus on what you're doing with the data. One thing that's also discussed a lot in the UK is the idea of trusted research environments. That's a concept that was introduced in 2020 by the UK Health Data Research Alliance. So I was hoping that you might explain that a little bit further. In essence, the idea is that you would have the data centralized, but it would be secure and available for research. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Is this going to change how things are done in terms of the data capture and everything you do at the Christie so far? A trusted research environment is a really interesting space and it's definitely something we're interested in forming our plans around. The key for us is, again, making sure the data is captured at high quality and then and making sure that, that is can be accessed either in real time or they put somewhere where it can be accessed securely. And the trusted research piece is all about how we can access things securely with the right permissions and the right anonymization and the right people are accessing it at the right time. So that's definitely something where we are looking at. And there's lots of different trusted research environments being set up in various parts of the UK and Manchester. So it's also working with our satellite partners and working with our neighbors to see what they're doing. So can we collaborate on things or do we? can we buy similar trusted research environments so we're not all buying different ones? So at least there's a bit more commonality between when we do land on a strategy and what do we, what's our direction? Given that you emphasized a few times how important open data is for the changes that you're introducing, I'm just trying to imagine if someone is leading a digital transformation project of a hospital, what would your advice to them be? What was your journey like for you to come to this decision to go with this approach? Yeah, I think definitely break that down into three parts. Number one is you've got to really focus not on the digital part first, but what's the organizational goals. And for the Christie, the organizational goals are quite different to many hospitals. So our organizational goals are cancer research in the first instance and delivering the best cancer care in the hospital and innovation. Uh, so I think that's the first part. The first, first part is don't necessarily dive into the tech. You've got to really focus on what's the organizational objective and do what's right for the organization because what's right for one organization is not necessarily right for another organization. So that's the first part. The second part is, is really having senior buy-in for what you're doing. And that really helps if you've got senior people who have worked in or have knowledge of data as well. I was really lucky at the time I did help someone uh, had a CIO that understood data and had worked with data in other roles as well. So that's really powerful because then that helps you convince all the other senior people around you. So that, that's the first part. Uh, that's the second part. And then the third part is making sure that you've got the capability and the skills 
to be able to deliver what you want to deliver because that's often the hardest part. And again, I was really lucky that we did have the capability and the skills already. So there wasn't much of the capability that we needed to bring in, which is really useful, really useful. When we're talking about capability, I'm assuming that you're referring to just having the right team and the people that know how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And in the UK, we certainly have a skill shortage in digital and data. So that is one of the most important things is making sure you've got that in-house capability to deliver that support and that and that transformation but also how do you bring in the skills to modernize and accelerate as well so that yeah absolutely the skills and the people are the key part so how big is the team that's leading the digital transformation we can repeat again 60,000 patients 650 clinical trials and over 3,000 employees in the trust it's always to know what's the percentage of the budget that goes into healthcare IT in Europe that's usually not as much as many in your position would wish yeah again in the UK we are a very small hospital in the grand scheme of things we're not oh, not a large hospital we have similar IT budgets to most hospitals around 2 around 2% 3% um but our team size is as a department again we're not a huge department the, the whole digital department is 130 people which is runs it in the entire setup so that balance is not abnormal in in the sort of more transformation during and data side we're a team of about a, a total it, including every all employee types, we're about 30, 35. Physically speaking, the Christie, as you described it, is not that big. There's a large volume of clinical trials going on. To which extent do you collaborate with other research centers and other hospitals? Because always when we talk about research and especially with diseases and also inside cancer becoming more and more niche, so to say, understood on the patient level. So turning also into rare diseases, which makes collaboration with other research centers that much more important. And given that you are transforming the way you're capturing data from that perspective, I'm wondering how does the collaboration with other institutions look like and how do you address the data harmonization issues that might arise when you start sharing data among institutions beyond the Christie? Yeah. Okay. So we work with a lot of different institutions, not in the hospital part, but in the research part. The Christie works very closely with the University of Manchester and it works very closely with other charities as well, mainly Cancer Research UK is the biggest charity in the UK. So yeah, we work with lots of different institutions. We also work with some of our partners in Greater Manchester and Cheshire to, for some more of that acute data because acute data, that acute data before you've got cancer is also quite important in that research to try and predict those that longitudinal history is really important for, to then add on to the data that you've had from your cancer. So yeah, we do a lot, we often do lots of different collaborative around and in terms of the data part, in terms of our cancer data, we're really leading in that in, in our area so we're we're driving driving behind those those models but we also work very closely with some of our research partners in other areas to share those data models but at the moment we're because a lot of cancer data isn't well modeled we're sort of leading the way so we're hoping to blueprint some of those models across some of those other organizations as well and what's the most difficult thing for you uh, in this whole digital transformation journey good great question i think the most difficult part for me is is probably all of perhaps the paperwork and writing business cases and writing all the documentation, all the process that you have to get through to probably move forward a 
project, which is not uncommon again in the, anyone who works in the public sector will have to, all the large organizations have to go through that. So I think to me, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hard administrative work to do big transformation, but I'm lucky that I, that's my role. Whereas the P, I'm lucky enough to have a really good team who can do the project relatively and without any guidance, that'd be really useful. We talked a little bit about the importance of having the buy-in, of explaining to the end users what the benefits of the digital transformation are going to be. Are there any feedback uh, thoughts that you could share that you already got from the end users so far in terms of all the digital transformation processes that you are running? I think most of the feedback we've had recently is from our EPROMS work, which is where patients fill in questionnaires at home through a digital portal and submit them into the trust. And the, most of the feedback's been very positive. So we were always concerned about digital literacy and how easy it is to fill in from a patient's point of view, how easy is it? But actually, once we've got the metrics through, over 90% of patients find filling in digital questionnaires and entering clinical data very easily. So 90% was a really good figure. And because we thought it would actually be a lot lower. So we've been really, that probably the key part is, I think sometimes we don't give users as much credit as we should do. We perhaps think they're not as smart as they should be, but certainly in our experience, we've had really user experience. has been something we've focused on and that's really paid off. And it's meant that where patients have completed questionnaires, it's been really easy. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. The topic of today's episode is supported by Better. Better is a provider of an open data digital health platform, electronic prescribing and medication administration solution, and local tools that help you rapidly build applications that suit your needs. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. And as mentioned, subscribe to our newsletter, which summarizes what has been presented on the show on a monthly basis. Stay tuned 